Turn your Bibles. We continue our sermon series from what we call 1 Corinthians, probably Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, but the first letter's missing, so it's the first one that's extant, you might say. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for a sermon entitled Critical Corinthians. Christianity Today writer Ed Stetzer, who by the way is coming to Amarillo in a few months ahead, was reflecting upon the criticisms he received after preaching a sermon. So he invited the other preachers who take Christianity Today with the question, what's the strangest thing you've ever heard after preaching a sermon? Here's what the pastor said. Pastor Liam Thatcher said, I was told, I couldn't focus on the entire talk because you had on some new glasses. That was the response to the sermon. <laughs> or Pastor Scott Slayton heard, your, preacher, your preaching's gotten a lot worse since your baby was born. It's like you're not as passionate about God anymore. <laughs> Jason Spears was informed, coming from my other church and my other pastor to hear you preach is like going from filet mignon to chopped up steak. Woo! <laughs> Jason's response, he said, well, I was young and immature at the time. The next Sunday, I handed her a bottle of A1 steak sauce, encouraged her to go back to the steak if she wanted to. <laughs> or Jeff Chandler heard, you're not like most pastors. When you say you sin, we believe it. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, Joe Puentes was told, you talk way too much about Jesus in your sermons. I'm going to change churches. Well, there you go. Some in Corinth were saying that Paul was, can't really be a great apostle because Paul is experiencing some suffering. And real apostles, they were wrongly saying, real apostles wouldn't suffer like that. And so far, Paul knew that's what they were saying in the, the Corinthian churches. He's been sort of mild in his responses. But when he comes to chapter 4, Paul right here is quite candid, rejecting their premature evaluation of both him and his ministry. When Tom Wright, New Testament theologian, was a little boy, he'd go over to his daddy's workbench. His daddy whittled with wood. He said his eyes were just table height, and you'd always wonder what his dad was making. On one particular occasion, his father was whittling what seemed to be a purposeless little bitty piece of wood. There was hardly anything left, and he kept whittling off more and more and more, and little Tom just couldn't understand. In fact, he even said something sort of critical to his father about it. What are you making? Why? This doesn't look very interesting. But you know... It's tough to, to judge a job half done. His father made no reply, but in a few days, his whittling made sense. Eight-year-old Tom came down to the breakfast table, and there in a glass bottle, in the belly of the glass bottle, was a, a beautiful ship in a bottle. And that last little piece was one of the little tiny spars that it was a perfect, elegant part of the ship that meant nothing at all until you saw the ship in the bottle. Why, during the night, purposely, while the rest of the family was asleep, 
His father pulled that string that all shipbuilders in the bottle realize that stands the mask up to the glory, and you wonder how he ever built that ship in that bottle. At no other point during the ship in the bottle building process does any of the little pieces make sense. Not until that final stage, the stage that his father did at midnight. Paul is saying something like that in this passage. There's going to be a final judgment, and God is a good and just God. And yes, the world needs to be put to rights, but you can't make sense of it now. Any more than an eight-year-old boy can make sense of a little piece of a spar of a ship until he sees it in the glory in the bottle. The problem is, Paul is saying, we want to make everything right prematurely. We want to pay off old scores ahead of time. We think we know what God should do, and we're eager to give God advice and everybody advice along the way. Some in Corinth were that way. They thought their new status as Christians, along with the wisdom they'd received from the world, gave them a right to pass judgment upon Paul and his apostleship and his ministry. Now remember, Paul had founded the church. Quite frankly, by their measure, Paul falls short. He doesn't think, they don't think that Paul is what he should be as a fully-fledged Christian teacher. So they're going to pass judgment on Paul before Judgment Day. Now, this is Paul's response. Well, not many people ever hear a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, in the common lectionary that a lot of denominations use to have the picking of the sermons, no one ever picks this passage. It's not a, it's not a pretty passage. It really isn't. Paul is sarcastic, and Paul is scolding, and Paul portrays a Christian life as one of suffering and deprivation. Then he employs patriarchal rhetoric to assert his own authority. And then he tells them without any bashfulness to imitate him. And then finally he says, I'm going to spank you like children with a rod when I get there. Yes, you will not hear many sermons out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not a very popular passage. Up until this point, Paul's communication has been artfully indirect. He's used metaphors and irony. But he takes off the wraps. He takes off the gloves in chapter 4, and he confronts them bluntly on two points. Their presumption, verses 1 through 5, in judging him. Their presumptuous judging of Paul himself. And then in verses 6 to 13, he addresses their arrogance in assuming that they have wisdom and that they're right. And then the sentences Final sentences, he adopts a warmer tone as a father trying to correct the children. And then he closes out with not such winsome material when he inclined to say that he's going to confront them because they resist his authority. Well, Paul's first point is this. In verses 1 through 5, the criteria of judgment is not success but faithfulness. The criteria of judgment of his apostleship is not success, but rather it should be faithfulness. Well, look what it says there in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
The mystery of God is the gospel, that God was at work in the person named Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection. So there's the mystery. In this case, moreover, as a steward, it is required that he be found trustworthy. So Paul's saying, my success or my suffering is, is not my measure. The measure is whether I have been trustworthy. <laughs> to me, it's a small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. Or in fact, I don't even examine myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. He will both bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. What matters to Paul is not winning or not lack of suffering, but rather being faithful. Oddly enough, we do have a curious paradigm in churches of judging pastors based upon success rather than faithfulness. In fact, there's a lot in common with being a, a head football coach and being a pastor. The pastor assembles a team. They take the church on the playing field. And my goodness, they're telling Paul, you better win the game. And we know what happens to Paul or coaches or preachers who don't win. But Paul's saying, wait a minute, time out. That's not the way we should judge ministry. He might not be winning in the eyes of the Corinthian congregation. But he says, Success is not the measure. Rather, have I been trustworthy? Look at verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. When we make success the measure of a minister, the ministers begin to do things to create false success which are not honoring to the church. Here's the second thing. Any other evaluation outside of God's evaluation is not only wrong, but suspect. Any other evaluation outside of God's evaluation is not only wrong, but suspect. Look at verse 3. It's no big deal to me that you criticize me or examine my work, Paul says. I'm not interested in what human courts have to say. I don't even rightly examine myself. You know, if I had another career ahead of me and I don't, I'm here, I would be a sports guy who talks on the radio or the TV, they really don't produce anything. They don't know anything. They just talk. They just talk. And, and what's strange is they don't know anything. They don't produce anything. They're just yakking, and we listen. We actually sit there and listen to all this foolishness while they go side by side. Today, if you watch a, a game of any sport, there's, there's talking heads, and they don't know any more than you know. In fact, I find a lot of them don't even do research. They just talk. Well, that would be the thing to do. That's the way they are in Corinth. They don't have anything else to do. So they're, remember, they're dividing the church up. Some of them like Apollos. Well, some over here, they like Peter, and this group likes Paul. They're just talking heads in Corinth, and they have nothing more to do than sit and evaluate the Apostle Paul and his success. And what Paul says is this, hey, I don't care what you say. I don't even care what I say. I, not only do I not care what you say, I might not know anything wrong about me, but it's only the Lord who matters. Now, there would be a, a rough contemporary with Paul, Seneca, the Roman philosopher, and he 
put a lot of importance on self-examination. Listen to the words of a Roman philosopher from this time named Seneca. Can anything be more excellent than this practice of thoroughly sifting the whole day? And how delightful the sleep that follows this self-examination. How tranquil it is, how deep and in trouble when the soul has either praised or admonished itself. And when this secret examiner and critic of self has given report of its own character, I avail myself to this privilege every day. I plead my cause before the bar of self. Paul would say, no, Seneca, you might not find anything wrong with yourself. It only matters what God finds with you. Where's the third thing he's saying here? When we judge the motives of others, we put ourselves in the seat of God. This is verse 5. When we judge the motives of others, we are placing ourselves in the seat of God. Paul asked the same questions in Romans 4.24, if you want a, a reference there. He says in Romans 4.24, Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? He's saying, I'm God's servant. God will judge me. He's saying that to the Corinthians and to the Romans. Paul is certain that judgment will come. But he says, the Lord is the one to judge. It's not ours before the time. Like a little boy judging a little spar whittled out of wood before he can see it in the glorious ship within the bottle. We should make no declaration of one's goodness or or one's unworthiness until Christ comes to judge. Now, what is it that we're not to judge? Now, we know in chapter 5, he's going to call upon that church to rebuke sin. So, Paul is not saying we can't call sin, sin. In fact, in chapter 5, he is disappointed with the church because they don't stand up and say that sin is sin. That's not the issue. It's not making a moral declaration about sin, but rather it is when they believe they can look within the heart and judge the motives of a man. When they look into the heart, look at at verse 5. The Lord comes who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, then each man's praise will come to him from God. The Lord, he knows it all. He'll be able to illuminate the things that are hidden, the things that are disclosed in darkness, and then God will be able to praise his servants. It is really easy to judge people, isn't it? People who look differently than we look people who talk differently than we talk, people who believe differently than we believe, people who aren't as nice as they should be, people who are ungrateful, people who don't witness enough, people who don't preach like we preach, people who don't like our style of music, just get somebody going, people who don't have our exact exact set of values, folks whose drummer beats to the sound of a different drum, Their road diverge in yonder wood, and we we don't understand why they took the path they took or why they are where they are now. Now listen to this. David Griffith made the observation. Among all the sins, judging others is unique. Judging motives. Now I'm not saying you can't call sin, sin. We have to do that. But judging the motives in the hearts of other humans, humans is a unique sin. All sin 
puts my will above the will of God. But when I'm judging one of his servants, our fellow laborers in Christ, I tend to put my will above God's will and above God's will for that person. Not only am I placing God's will above my own will in my own life, I'm placing my will above God's will for my fellow servant's life. And that's why it's wrong. Paul says, wait until the Lord comes and he will make the judgment. Paul believes that the inner workings of the human heart are beyond our ability to judge. In fact, someone might say, nobody knows what's inside of me but me. And Paul would say, you don't even know. Well, no one knows the motive of my heart like I do. Paul would say, are you even being honest with yourself? Paul says, I don't know of anything against myself, but that doesn't make me clean. That doesn't make me innocent. The Lord comes and the Lord knows and the Lord will judge what's in our hearts. What happens? What do we do when criticism comes? Paul's certainly getting his, his part of it here. Number one, always expect it. Always expect it. Listen to the way they describe this guy. He keeps bad company. He's always hanging around losers. He's a glutton and he's a drunkard and he's an idiot. He's a lunatic. Anybody want to guess who they're describing? Matthew 9, Matthew 11, Luke 7, John 8. Jesus. He keeps bad company. He's always hanging around losers. He's a glutton, he's a drunkard, and he's a lunatic. That's how the world measured Jesus. People criticized the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. Yes, they did, and they will criticize us too. And the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth there are a lot of beautiful paintings, but one in particular um, uh, by a master is an oil canvas painted by Rembrandt in the 1600s. It's called Portrait of a Young Jew. Portrait of a Young Jew. And the plaque by that painting in the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth reads this way. Few artists are as well known and appreciated in our day as Rembrandt. Yet at age 57, when he placed his signature on this picture... Rembrandt was judged by his contemporaries as being an archaic painter of an outmoded tradition. So Rembrandt, everybody loved to have a painting by Rembrandt. In his day, when he was painting, the critics said, he's too old-fashioned. Can you name any of Rembrandt's critics today? Are there paintings hanging in the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth? See, judging Rembrandt at the time, the culture missed it. The conversation might begin sometimes like this. I don't want to be critical, but, well, we don't get too excited about the rest of that sentence, do we? And yet criticism can mean growth for us and change. We can take it in a constructive way, not always in a destructive way. And how we hear and how we handle criticism says a lot about who we are. It means the difference between personal and professional growth or alienation and stagnation because we refuse to hear it. Well, when we respond to criticism, first of all, we can, we can always deny it. We can equate any criticism with unfair attack. We can be unwilling to examine ourselves and to be vulnerable. In fact, 
When our coworkers see us responding to criticism, they see us as mature, willing to grow and increase. Another way we respond to criticism, this is most all of our favorites, is to counterattack. Yeah, well, what about the time that you is the next sentence out of our, our mouth? Pointing out why the criticism is valid and why the person who's the critic is worse than we ourselves are. Well, the third way is to emotionally collapse and panic. Perhaps we're insecure and unsure. And when someone makes one critical mark about one area of our life, we totally collapse and well, we just think that life's not worth living anymore because we didn't do that one small thing right. Or fourth, we can just expect it. Criticism will come. Nothing is easier than fault finding. It takes no talent, no self-denial, no brains, no character required to set up in the grumbling business. You can start right now. No, nothing else is required. Expect it. Can any of you remember a time in your life when a critical comment really hurt you? Can any of you remember, now Paul's at that moment right here in 1 Corinthians 4. Can any of you remember a time in your life when a critical comment really hurt you? 90% of people would say yes to that. I would say yes to that. 90% of people can say, I can remember a time in my life when criticism really, really hurt me. Channing Pollock said, a critic is a legless man who teaches running. This, back to your sports broadcasters here, a legless man who teaches running. George Bernard Shaw summed up the drama critic, a man who leaves no turn unstoned. A man who leaves no turn unstoned. There are reviewers of symphonies and concerts and art shows and fundraising events I even read a column by a woman who reviews church sermons. That's her job, to go around and review. Oh, she's not here today. Review church sermons. Every time the president speaks, his speech is followed by a group of critics who tell us what he said, what he didn't say, why it's right, why it's wrong, analyzed. Criticism. The basic ability to just enjoy an event or a person or disappearing one by one. I expect to read a criticism of a, a local wedding sometime, pointing out that the wedding ceremony had little substance, the groom was miscast, and the bride's father admitted the whole production was way over budget. That's the way it goes. Expect it. Number two, evaluate it. Evaluate it. Paul did and found it wanting. Well, you want to see where Paul was a little bit uh, angry here. Look at verse 7. Let's begin here. You can see how he, what he sums up his critics. Now, Paul, everybody knows what sarcasm is here. Just think of, I'll try to read it sarcastically so you'll get the tone of what he's saying. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Oh, I, indeed, I wish you were king, so I might reign right beside you. For I think God exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both the angels and men. Now, remember, they were saying real apostles wouldn't suffer, and now he's saying, yes, we do. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. 
We are weak, but look at you. You're so strong. You are distinguished. We don't have any honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated. We are homeless and we toll, working with our own hands. We are reviled. We bless. We are persecuted. We endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world and dregs of all things, even until now. Evaluate who's saying it. There's a farmer who went in and asked a restaurant owner, he wanted to buy a million frog legs. Well, the restaurant owner was really wanting to put the frog legs on his menu more often. He said, well, I do want some more frog legs. Where do you have them? He said, I got a pond full of them. They keep me up all night long with all that croaking. He said, I'll tell you what, let me start out with 200 frog legs. All right, that'll be easy, said the farmer. He went and he drained the pond down. He was going to collect the 200 frogs till he got 200 frogs and about a week went by, and he came back with two scrawny little toads in his hands. And he said, what happened to my hundred frog legs? He said, these two little frogs were making all the noise all night long. <laughs> Who knew two toads could make so much noise? Evaluate the criticism. Who's saying it? In the case of Paul, it was unworthy critics of the apostle and the father of the church. Evaluate criticism. There's a third thing. We need to employ the criticism. Employ the criticism. If one person calls you a horse, smile. If a second person calls you a horse, think about it. When a third person calls you a horse, go buy a saddle. You're probably a horse. <laughs> People who benefit from criticism do not duck their critical comments thrown at them, but they do not consider them a personal assault. They feel no need to even the score. Instead, they use criticism to better themselves, using the sharp blade of the critic to refine their skills. It's been said, get a friend to tell your faults, or better still, welcome an enemy. He will watch you keenly and sting you savagely. What a blessing such an irritating critic will be to a wise man, an intolerable nuisance to a fool. Here's a final thing. Avoid doing it yourself. Don't be like the Corinthians. Avoid doing it yourself. A young musician's early concert was poorly received by the critics. The famous Finnish composer, Gene Sibelius, reminded the young musician, Son, there is not a city in the world where they have set up a statue to a critic. There's not a city in the world where they have set up a statue to a critic. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man has stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The critic belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows the end of triumph and high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So that his place would never be of those cold and timid souls who know neither the victory nor defeat. Teddy Roosevelt. Paul, you can't be a real apostle. You suffer. You have hardships in your life. Look at us. We've arrived, Paul. We're the super apostles, they will say in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, wait a minute. 
I know you're kings and we're nothing. I know you're rich and we're poor. I know you're distinguished and we have no honor. But don't judge someone before the Lord returns. In fact, even I don't judge myself. Because if I judge myself and I don't find anything wrong, I might think I'm okay. But let the master judge his servant. And our master is the Lord. And when he returns, he will give each man his praise. Let us pray. Oh, God, it's so easy for us, even those who follow you, as evidenced by this book, to become censorious and critical in our spirits. Father, help us when we're looking at our neighbor, when we're looking at our family. Father, help us not to label their motives, but know that you, O oh God, are the one who truly knows their hearts. Amen.